Maintaining that abundance mentality, this mentality that your spending is an investment and that investment is going to have a return, not just focusing on what that cost is. Because especially when you're first starting a business, it's difficult, you know, to every dollar you're shelling out, you're thinking about it, especially when you don't have a W-2 job. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Kent Ritter, and today we're talking about what separates successful real estate investments and real estate investing businesses from unsuccessful ones. Kent has a successful track record in business and in real estate. He's gonna tell you more about it, but he got exposure to hundreds and hundreds of businesses and what it takes to improve them and what separates successful from unsuccessful businesses. And now he's brought that expertise into real estate. And today he's summarizing it for us so that we can know what separates a successful real estate investment from an unsuccessful one. We're also learning about what it takes to scale, delegate, so much else in real estate investments. If you want to be profitable, no matter as a passive or an active investor, you gotta know what makes a real estate investment successful. And that's what we're learning today. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in apartments and self-storage. If you're interested in learning more and applying to join our Passive Investor Club for access to our passive real estate investment opportunities, go to investwithtaylor.com. Once again, invest with T A Y L O R.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Your network is your net worth and vice versa. So if you can help someone else grow their network, grow their wealth, grow their passive wealth, then that's going to come right back at you. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so, do look us up, The Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit that subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest is Kent Ritter. We're talking about what separates successful real estate investments and businesses from the unsuccessful ones, how to scale, and so much more. Without any further ado, here we go. Kent, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we've been talking here for a few minutes, and you have a fascinating background, really inspiring, and just the amount that you've accomplished up until now is, is awesome, and I know you have a lot coming down the road as well. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you give us an intro as to where you come from and what you're up to now? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I think my story, probably the relevant piece starts when I graduated from college. I, I became a management consultant, flew around the country you know, for years helping companies solve big problems. So in doing that, I got to see hundreds of different businesses, what worked, what didn't work. As you do that, you start to identify trends. You start to really understand what makes businesses successful and and others unsuccessful. And I think that has really shaped my view of how to operate a business, what to do, what not to do. And then as I've become a real estate investor and and now I'm growing that business and I've been able to take a lot of those lessons learned forward and just avoid most of the pitfalls, I think, that, that people make their first time out. You know, through my management consulting career in 2010, some colleagues and I left the firm we were at. We started our own business. We started a boutique management consulting firm. We grew that from 
you know, five guys around a kitchen table, literally to 95 employees and 30 million in annual revenue in about five and a half years. And we sold that at the end of 2015. And that's what really set off my real estate investing career because I had capital from the exit from selling the business. And I already had a pretty decent brokerage account. I knew I didn't want to put more money just into the stock market and have all my eggs in one basket. And so I was looking for alternative ways to invest. And as I did my research, you know, I really just gravitated to real estate. And then, you know, through some trial and error and just through some different things over the years, I really fell in love with multifamily real estate. It just makes a ton of sense to me. And then I learned about syndications, which really blew my mind. You know, I thought I was a pretty good investor. I, you know, invested a ton actively in the stock market. I invested in other things, Bitcoin, you know, done some angel investing, things like that. When I thought real estate, right, I thought you buy a single family home and you become a landlord because that's all I ever knew people that were in real estate, what they did. Or you see like people flipping houses on HGTV, right? (laughs) Uh, But I had no idea that you could go out and invest in a massive apartment building alongside somebody who really knows what the hell they're doing and just be totally passive and just collect the monthly or quarterly checks. And so when I learned that, that really made a ton of sense to me. I, I started investing first with others you know, with folks I found in the industry who had been doing this and had a good track record. And I used that really to learn the business, learn about syndications and real estate and acquiring apartments. And again, just like what I learned as a management consultant with businesses, like what makes it work, what makes it not work, you know, because at the end of the day, these apartments that we're buying at the scale we're buying them at, they are businesses, you know, they have revenue, they have expenses and they're businesses that have largely been operating for 30 or 40 years successfully. But if you look at it that way, then you can start to see the levers and understand you know, what you can push and pull to make these things be really successful. And so really in 2019, I was a co-sponsor on my first syndication. And fast forward to the end of 2021, uh, we're closing on Tuesday on our 8th. And uh, you know, I've, I've launched my own business, Hudson Investing, because I realized it, this started out very personal for me. It was just about taking my money and investing it and diversifying. But along the way, I realized, one, I'm pretty good at this. I've spent from really 2015 to 19, I mean, about four and a half years, just learning as much as I could, going through a few coaching programs, finding mentors. And then, you know, when you're doing that, people start to say, hey, what are you doing? What is that you're doing? You know, how do I get involved in that? And enough people ask you and it started to hit me over the head that, hey, maybe I could turn this into a business. And so we did in 19 and we've just been rolling and now we've got a good track record. You know, we've got eight under our belt. We know what we're doing. It's really about growing and scaling and taking advantage of where I think the market's going to go. Nice. Nice. So really impressive background that you had before you got into real estate and now you're really cranking and making it work. And you mentioned things that uh, or alluded to learning things that make businesses work versus you know fail, especially from your your management consulting time. And I wanted to really dig into that and stick to the you know the most applicable lessons to real estate that you found from that time. So, what lessons did I learn as a management consultant that best translate to yeah. real yeah. estate? Sorry, investing? maybe that wasn't the particularly clear question, but that, that was no, what that's I fine. Just want to make sure I you know I hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really the same things. Like I said, these are businesses and you have to look at them as businesses. And one of the biggest things is culture. It may sound like cliche or it's something that, you know, kind of often talked about now, but it, it really is incredibly important, whether you're building your own business 
or you're operating, you know, an apartment building, I mean, the culture that you create among the team, the people on the team, the property management people, whether you're hiring third party or you have your own, you know, how they interact with each other, how they interact with the residents creates the culture on property of, you know, are you creating a sense of community on the property? Are you doing things to engage the residents and keep them, you know, make them sticky to that property? Right. I mean, I think that all of that is incredibly, incredibly important. The tone that you set as a leader and the people that you bring on and making sure that there's a very high level of accountability and accountability like to actions, but, but I think also to attitude because a one toxic person can sink a business. I mean, it's, it's amazing when I've seen that. So yeah, so culture is one, you know, I think we talked about accountability to have accountability. You really have to have clear objectives, clear procedures. And so I think being very clear about people's roles and functions, about their objectives, giving them context around how their job function impacts the rest of the organization. I mean, oftentimes that's what I would see as a management consultant. If you think about like an assembly line process, you maybe have like, you know, 10 steps, the person doing step two doesn't understand how what they do impacts the person at step eight. You know, doesn't understand like if you do this, it negatively affects that person. They have no idea. So they don't know not to do it. Most people want to do the right thing. They just don't know. And it's amazing how those disconnects exist. So even just connecting those dots for people and giving them context about how they fit into the global picture, I think one, it gives people a sense of purpose. And two, it helps them be able to critically think about, should I do this or or should I not? Because how's it going to affect everything downstream, right? I think downstream, you've got to have a feedback loop back upstream so that you can get that feedback and and say, hey, when you do this, this negatively happens to me. and, And so let's talk about how we can avoid that. Those are some really simple ones, but things that I think we take very seriously. I I think adding on to that, the other thing with accountability is you have to be able to very easily measure what matters, right? And you have to be able to to measure what you're going to hold people accountable to. Otherwise, how do you know if they've succeeded or failed? So I think having very clear KPIs, key performance indicators, they have to be simple and they have to be easily attained and, and they've got to be available to everybody. So, you know, you pick like your top three things and focus on those, figure out like the levers that really, really drive the car, right? Move the ship, whatever you want to say, and just really focus and hammer on those things, but keep it simple. I mean, I saw a ton of companies spend so much money on reporting and they'd end up with a dashboard with 50 metrics on it. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, which ones really matter and which ones are we really focusing on? So like three to five. Those are some simple ways. I mean, if you do those things, I think most businesses will be successful. Yeah. Something I had seen is, um, you know, in corporate America is years ago is this idea that we could focus on everything. Well, that's ridiculous. It's not how focus works. We can only focus on one, maybe a handful of things, but like you said, companies can spend so much on all these reports and then you don't even know where to start or what to go for. And I appreciate that you're you're talking about this in in actual business terms. I think that's where many, especially small-time landlords go wrong and if you spend any time on bigger pockets, you're going to see these threads all the time of, "Hey, I've got this tenant and blah blah blah. I chose not to evict them because, you know, I got this bleeding heart and and I, you know, let my emotions get into it." Whereas a business, you know, you're going to have systems, procedures and processes if, you know, a tenant doesn't pay or they break something. And that's what leads a real estate investment to be successful is those procedures, taking the emotion out of it. Well, that's exactly right. When you're dealing with housing, it's even more important because there's a thing called fair housing. Absolutely. And you have to treat every tenant in in the same way. You can't 
give one a break and then not give another a break. I mean, just opens you up to huge risk from a fair housing compliance standpoint. So you really do have to have those policies and procedures and you have to just refer back to them and you can't let emotion get in the way. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not a slumlord. I don't try to take advantage of people, but like you have to hold the tenants accountable too. You know, if they say they're going to pay rent and they don't pay rent, well, I mean, that doesn't work for you or your business. And so, you know, we try to work with people as, as much as we can, but but you do have to, even in those situations, you know, have a clear policy and clear guidelines so that everybody does everything the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. You know, we don't want to be slumlords, but the way we can keep from being slumlords is by running like a business and, and taking care of our properties and getting, you know, troubled tenants out because they ruin the the culture of the, the properties themselves. Now, um, you also talk about um, building a company that aligns with your mission and your values. And I want to dive into that a bit and, and learn about what that means to you and I guess how that can really help us grow and, and be more successful because I think that is important, but we got to get to what that actually means in a nuts and bolts sense. Sure. So what it means is just kind of starting with, you know, I think as a leader, you have to have a very clear vision for what you want. Because what the people that are coming, that are going to come on board or are on board with you, like are your employees, what they want, like really more than anything, is that vision and something that they can rally around. So as a leader, it's your job to create that. And I think the values are a part of that, you know, your values and your mission. And, you know, it's really about, I think, the tone you're setting for the culture and how you let the culture develop. And I think holding people accountable to those values. I think values are good for one, like it's always something, like you said, we, we need standard, you know, policies, right? When, when we're interacting with, with tenants, for example. Well, those values are kind of those guideposts as you are making business decisions. And, and as you come across, difficult decisions, it can be very helpful to have these things to look at and say, okay, well, does this decision align with my values or does it not? And it can help you in those times where you don't really know which way to go, make a decision. Because the worst thing you can do in a business is not make a decision and just have an action. Uh, usually no answer is going to be the perfect answer, right? We never have perfect information. So it's really just about, you've got to make a decision. You've got to be convicted in that decision and you've got to stick with it for a period of time, but continue to measure. And as soon as it doesn't make sense, pivot and adjust, but you have to move forward with conviction at every pivot point. And so, um, I think those values really help you align. Like one of my favorite values uh, that we have is just, uh, continuous growth. So I tell my team, look, I, like, I don't expect you to be perfect. I don't expect you to do it perfect every time, but I do expect you to do it better next time than you did this time. And that's really you know, what we hold folks accountable to. It's like, are you learning? Are you critically thinking about what you did? If you made a mistake once, that's fine. Let's learn from it, right? There's no punishment. There's anything. But if you continuously make that mistake, then clearly there's an issue there. Right. And so, and that's something that we need to address. But that's one that I really try to live by is like not hold people to, to some idea of, of perfection. And oftentimes you, you never think that people are going to be able to do it as good as you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you see leaders hold too much because they think, oh, I can do it better than anybody else. Well, I mean, as a leader, you got to get comfortable with the folks you hire are going to do it like 80% as good as you do. Because at the end of the day, it's your business, it's your baby, it's not their business, it's not their baby. And, you know, so you got to be comfortable with that, but, but 80% right is good enough and done, done is better, better than perfect. perfect. Yeah. yeah. So I think in that way, if you can delegate out, 
you know, that's the key to growth. You got to be able to delegate. It's like, there's the book, uh, who not how it's Mm -hmm. a great book. And it's really all about, don't think about how you're going to get it done. Think about who's going to get it done for you and then let them run with it and let them take care of it. So how have you applied that in your real estate business? Have you mentioned that you started in 2019? Now you're up to, I think you mentioned eight deals. And I'm sure by the time this goes live, you'll have even a few more. And it's not like we're talking about, you know, buying a couple of single families. These are large properties. You want to buy a thousand units next year. So how have you applied that who not how philosophy and, and any of these other values philosophies to your business, you know, in a specific sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, just in building my team, very intentionally building out a team. One of the hardest things for me and for others too, is just maintaining that abundance mentality, this mentality that your spending is an investment and that investment is going to have a return, not just focusing on what that cost is. Because especially when you're first starting a business, it's difficult. You know, to Every dollar you're shelling out, you're thinking about it, especially when you don't have a W-2 job. right? And so just maintaining that mindset of abundance and that these costs are actually investments, I think is huge. And so I've invested in my team. So I have about nine members on my team and they all do fairly specific things. I think specificity of focus is extremely important. You know, you, uh, you can either go a mile in one direction or you can go, you know, an inch in a thousand directions. You can't, you can't do both. (laughs) And so, yeah, I try to give people very specific roles you know, again, like focus, like three to five things to focus on. And that's what they do. And then they can get really good at doing those things. Like I do my own podcast. It's called Ritter on Real Estate. And I've got a team of four people that help me put that together from editing to advertising to booking. And then I've got my personal assistant who really is more now of kind of like an operations coordinator. She's kind of the hub that keeps everybody communicating and keeps everything flowing. Uh, You know, we've got, we've got accounting, we've got uh, you know, we've got kind of other marketing and investor relations. We've got underwriters. And then now I'm actually hiring my first full-time position, which is uh, going to be a director of acquisitions, somebody that can really own that deal vertical from, from sourcing to, to closing. And so again, like that's a, that's a high valued position. It's a costly position, but for me, it's an investment. And it's the only way if I want to acquire a thousand units next year, the only way I'm going to do that's with help and with somebody that's focusing on this sourcing full-time. You know, that's how I've applied that is really being intentional. Like first it's, it's understanding what my highest and best use is and then delegating everything else. Very, very intentionally trying to delegate everything else. And, you know, I'm not perfect at it, but by any means, I mean, there, there are things that I have held onto way too long and been a bottleneck for and been short-sighted on, you know, and cost focused, right? Like, I'll give you a quick example where like, it's kind of stupid looking back, but like <laughs> I, I used to record all, all my podcasts uh, to Zoom on my computer. And then I had to manually upload them to the Google Drive for my editor to grab. And it's like 40 bucks a month for Zoom to just record directly to the cloud where he could just go get them right away on my set and didn't have to have me as a bottleneck. And you know, I was like, oh, I don't want to spend $40 a month just to do that. And like, that was so stupid. It was like, it's totally worth $40 a month to remove myself from the process and just make it run smoothly. So, you know, just, just keeping that mindset. That's fair. That's fair. One of the things I found, just as a comment on that specifically, one of the things that I found is the audio quality is better when you record directly to your computer. So that, that was my experience with that in particular versus recording in the cloud. So that, that's just my opinion on that, but we won't gotcha. get hung up on that. Now, 
there's, um, I believe it's the book Traction. Uh, it's been a little mm-hmm. while since I actually read that, but they talk about really lining out the structure of your business and, and the roles and everything like that way before you're, you know, actually filling them, just, just mapping that out. Is that something that you did, you know, building your org chart as you fill them out or, or, you know, how, I guess, far looking are you being on this? Like, did you know about yeah. the directive acquisitions, you know, way, way before you can actually hire that person? Good question. Uh, yes. So I, I have a complete org chart for where I want my business to be in three years. And, you know, and it's way bigger than than just one, you know, the director of acquisitions or there, there's much more. And so, and I've intentionally thought about the the order in which I need to hire these people. And so, so yeah, I've been very intent. I think that's very helpful to, to think about, think about your org chart, think about the, the job roles that, that need to be completed and then, and then build that out. Cause at first you are that line level, you're the bottom level and you're doing all those things. Right. But as you, place people in those roles, then you can move up into like that supervisor and manager level. And then you replace those roles. You can move up into that director level and place those roles. And then only once you have that team under you, can you actually be like the CEO that like your title might say you are, but, but only once you have those other people in place, can you really act in that like proper capacity? You know, that's, that's something that I've, I want to go back and, and redo for myself because I think um, I want to get that next step up. How do I think about next thing. So you, you said three years out, I guess, did you kind of start that way? Or like, when did you decide to make a three-year map? Where did that in particular come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know where, I think it just seemed like a, like a logical growth time frame to mm-hmm. me to, to be able to grow. I was like, I think we can do this in three years was kind of the thing. I, you know, that was, I think it was kind of arbitrary, uh, really. But but I've become much more intentional in tying tying that org chart to and and the growth to kind of specific specific events or, or trigger points. So you know it started with okay we've you know at, at, like I've been sourcing deals largely uh, managing the broker relationships and then raising equity uh, on my own and really wow. wearing bo- both hats. And that's fine. We've had a ton of success. You know, we're at 600 something units. I've raised 12 or $13 million at this point in the last uh, probably 15 months. And, and so we've had a good start, but, but, but in doing that, and I could continue to do that. I could continue to do that every year and, and be pretty comfortable, but to grow, we've got to do more. So, so I set the goal for a thousand units. You know, I think we're going to have to acquire six to eight deals. Uh, and I think, and to do, like, I know, like we had at one point this year, I had three deals under contract at the same time. And like my head was spinning, trying to keep everything straight. And so I just know if, if I want to be able to do six, eight, help 10, who knows, got to have somebody to have that full focus. And so that was like the trigger point was setting that goal and say, okay, again, not how do I achieve that goal? But like, who is going to help me achieve this goal? And it's like, okay, you got to invest in, in that person. I've got to have my like the yin to my yang, right? The person that that's sourcing those deals and, and bringing bringing in good acquisitions, and then you know the next major hire will be at like at a senior level will be an asset a director of asset management, and that's really the trigger point. There is, is number of units because you know I think when we get to somewhere like a thousand to twelve hundred units, it's going to be too much for me to be able to to asset manage appropriately on my own and also 
be able to raise the amount of equity that I want to raise. And so that we're going to get to that unit count and we're going to bring that person in, you know, we're going to build out a team under him as we continue to grow. But, um, but yeah. And just so, so kind of aligning that growth path to certain trigger points, I think is, is a really effective way to know when it's time to, to make that next hire. Because I think with hiring people are typically reactive. It's typically, Oh, Oh crap! I'm too busy. I need to hire somebody to uh, to help me with this load, right? And 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 I've you know in some ways like historically you know as we've done this you know I've done I've been guilty of some of that. Much more effective to identify it ahead of time, know the metric or thing you're tracking that's going to say okay it's time to hire, and then do it intentionally and have that person on board before something fell off and now you realize that they're needed. Interesting. So one of the big things that probably everybody's heard is the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle, I think it is, where 80% of your results come from 20% of your efforts. And before we you know, go to the end of the show, I just wanted to ask, you know, does that ring true for you in your business? And if so, what is that 20% of efforts that's generating 80% of your results? That's a good question. I think it depends on on what type of, of results, but I would say just from a capital raising standpoint, it's my podcast. Hmm, interesting. You know, my podcast is, is my best way to engage with potential investors to let them know who I am, help them understand my personality, help them understand, you know, my integrity and my principles and my knowledge and, and get people to to kind of know, like, and trust you, right? ahead of time. And so that has been, it's not a huge time commitment because I've built out a team at this point. It was a huge time commitment the first six months when I started and I was literally doing everything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, this is like 10 times harder than I thought this was going to be. <laughs> um, but now that I build out a team, it's just, I, I just, you know, I show up, uh, we, you know, I've got, you know, some research done for me. So I've got kind of one pager on, on each guest and know what I, what I want to ask. And it's just, but it, it has been, uh, has had a monumental impact on my business and my ability to engage with investors and uh, and just the level of relationships I've been able to build with investors because you can only have so many one-on-one conversations. There's only so much time in the day. Totally. But but that really helps people, I think, get to know who I am and decide if they like me or not and if we resonate. Uh, so by the time I've had I'm having that phone conversation with our investors because I do talk with with everyone still, it's just a much different conversation than starting from square one. I find most of the time. Interesting. So would you say, I suppose you made some implications in, in, let me step back. What would you say is the the stage that it helps the most? Is it that, is it that initial introduction so that when you get on the phone with them, they, they kind of know about you and who you are, or is it, okay, now they know you and, you know, it's just building that relationship, them continuing to keep up with you, keep in touch with you so that when you have a deal, you know, ready to go. They, they still understand that you're, you know, still in the business and, you know, all these things that you're up to is what stage is it most beneficial for you? Most beneficial is, is probably that the initial stage of just, uh, letting folks one, like introducing folks to me and, and who I am and, and that, I, that I'm out there doing this. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's beneficial, honestly, for both of those things that you mentioned. I mean, I think if, if you're like, I've learned that, the amount of time that passes uh, between the time that I speak with an investor or a potential investor, uh, the more time drastically decreases the, the probability that they will invest. So if it's somebody I haven't talked with in six months, 
uh, pretty low likelihood that they're going to invest in my next deal. If it's uh, somebody that I've, I've talked to recently and I've kind of kept that relationship up, it's a pretty high likelihood. And so I think the podcast just helps uh, just helps you stay engaged with people. And it's a one-to-many relationship because again, you can, you can only have so many one-on-one conversations. Uh, now, that's why I'm bringing on the director of acquisitions because I want to I free up more time to have more one-on-one conversations and have deeper conversations and spend more time in that world. But you know, still, there's only 24 hours in a day. That's absolutely true. And, and I suppose you, you have to focus on the time or the, the, the tasks where you can really add the most value. Again, getting back to that 80-20, okay, you're going to hand off tasks to well-qualified people so you can focus on, I suppose, the aspect of the business that you enjoy the most too. I mean, that, that's yeah. also going to bring the most satisfaction for you. That's right. It's like, I, it goes back to what's your highest and best use, right? Like, what is the thing that you can do that nobody else can do? And the thing that I think I can do that nobody else can do uh, or not many people can do is just, and that I enjoy the most, because you're right, you got to enjoy it, is just talking, one, just talking with people about real estate, uh, talking with investors, but like more than that, it's it's educating people to know that that this type of investment is possible because I didn't for a long time and, and it's been life-changing for me and I find it's life-changing for others uh, because most people don't have access to the type of Cash flow and returns that you can get in these real estate investments, and a lot of the the first reaction I have from people is, "Oh, that sounds too good to be true." <laughs> it's like, well, it's not. You're you're just not used to it. You haven't been exposed to it. You know, we don't have huge marketing campaigns around these projects, like you know, uh, ETFs do and mutual funds and your four hundred one ks and all that. So it's just you haven't been exposed. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many reasons why the the mainstream financial media or the corporate financial media, if you will, is is so focused on the Wall Street's products. And and that's what we're here trying to help folks get out of Wall Street. And I feel like we've uh, done a great job of that today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Kent, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? Hit me. Awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Man, uh, I should probably say my family, right? My, 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 my wife and kids, but 
From a just pure return standpoint, I mean, it's got to be the other business that we had in the consulting firm that we created. Uh, it's investment of, of time and capital, but you know, grand slam returns. And it was a lot of fun doing it. Nice, nice. And a successful exit and then brought you to where you are today. We yeah. had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, that's easy. In 2015, <laughs> when I was uh, when I was dipping my toe in the water into real estate, one of the the first things I did was like crowdfunding was pretty new back then. Uh, but I went out to to a crowdfunding site, and I made I made two investments. Uh, one of one of them uh, was a debt investment. It, it did fine. Uh, the other one was my first syndication uh, on the equity side that I invested in, and the guy ended up committing fraud. And all the investors, we lost all of our money. And uh, and I was like, man, this is a punch in the gut. <laughs> but it was it wasn't enough to d- deter me. I mean, I, I I didn't blame real estate for it. I blamed I blamed that guy for being a bad person. And then I and I really blamed myself. It was a huge lesson learned for me because. The reason I got in that situation is because I didn't do the due diligence that I should have done uh, before I made that investment. I mean, literally, I just you're just scrolling through the page, and it's like, oh, there's <laughs> you know Houston, that's like a, a good market. There's some multifamily uh, returns look good. Click on it, you know, I don't know. Ten minutes later, like I'm investing this deal and I'm sending my money over. Uh, I did I didn't know diligence. I, you know, I thought the site was doing diligence. They advertised that they were doing diligence, but you know, a lot of that's marketing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so yeah, it was a lesson learned. So a lot of what I try to teach people now is, you know, before you look at the deal, before you look at the market, you got to start with the sponsor and you got to say, you know, is this somebody that that you should be investing with? Like, is it a good person? Do they have integrity? Are there, are there signs of success in their, in their past that are going to signal, you know, future success? And, you know, you never know a hundred percent. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The first thing that's popping into my head is that uh, again, it goes back to done is better than perfect. You know, I, I was on uh, Billy Keel's podcast a few months ago, and uh, he's got he's got a term that I loved. It was uh, he's he calls himself a recovering perfectionist. And I was like, man, like that just so resonates with me. I, I completely understand what you're saying. Uh, it was like with my podcast, you know, it took me like a year from thinking about doing it to really do it. And a lot of it was my own limiting beliefs and my own concerns about, is it going to be good enough and imposter syndrome? What do I have to share? Those types of things. And man, you just got to get started mm-hmm. because my... 75th show is so much better than my first show, but you just improve through iteration, I think is the lesson at the end of the day. Just get started and improve through iteration. It goes back to the value I discussed of, you know, just get better every time. Nice. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I've been on Billy's show and Billy's been on this show before. So, you know, I know him and uh, that is an interesting phrase. I don't know if I ever heard him say that, but I, I like that. Well, Kent, thank you for joining us today, sharing all these lessons with us. For folks out there, if they want to get in touch with you, they want to track you down, they want to find uh, you or your podcast or anything like that, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. You can go to kentritter.com and that's my home base. You can access my blog. I've got investor resources there, my podcast. If you want to go straight to the podcast, it's called Ritter on Real Estate. It's everywhere that you listen to podcasts. 
And, um, you know, and those are probably the two best places. Other than that, you can find me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, probably the most just Kent Ritter and then, uh, Instagram and Facebook it's Ritter on real estate. So you can, you can find me just about anywhere. Great. Well, it was great talking with you today. Thank you for joining in. Thank you for uh, coming and joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, don't share their... (laughs) Jeez, don't share the show. Please share the show with them. Don't forget to share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. If you haven't subscribed yet, do look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.